0: Good morning. This is the moment that you have all been waiting for. Only if you've been with us through the summer. If you're new, welcome. We're doing Daniel in the lion's den today, chapter 6 in the book of Daniel. This whole series has been leading up to this moment. The graphic was instilled for this very moment. When some of you hear Daniel, you instantly think about Daniel in the lion's den. So that is what we're going to dive into this morning. Before we dive into it, I just want to refresh your memories about the past few weeks. Uh, Pastor Steve last week talked about uh, verses, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. So before we dive into the lion's den today, I'm just going to give a quick preface before we enter into the story today. So last week, uh, there was satraps and administrators uh, that were a part of Darius's reign that were trying to um, catch Daniel and to try to throw him in jail. But as they began to investigate his life, they could find nothing wrong with him. And so they had to come up with a conspiracy to trap him, to try to get him out of a position of authority. So that's where we're going to pick up this morning. So you guys can read along with me Daniel 6, starting in verses 6. This is going to be kind of like Dave's abridged version, because I don't want to spend 10 minutes reading the story. Uh, So you guys can follow along with me on the screen behind me. Uh, Daniel 6, verse 6. So, These administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. So, King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he has done before. Then these men went as a group and they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. And as they went to the king, this is my preface, they said, you remember the decree you wrote? The king said, of course I do. We just wrote it. And they said, are you going to enforce it? The king said, of course I did. We just wrote it. And so the satraps and administrators came back and they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and they said to him, Remember, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den The king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating or without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den, where he came near the den. He called to Daniel and an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions and they have not heard me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, there was no wound found on him because he had trusted in his God. What a powerful story of what it looks like to trust God. God. Now before we dive into the rest of this, I'm going to do a quick recap of the last few weeks that we've spent together. Darius is the third king in which Daniel has served under. First we learn about Nebuchadnezzar who had these prophetic dreams and he wanted somebody to interpret his dream without him telling them the dream. And so he was going to kill anybody who wasn't able to do that. There were some of the prophets at that time. But Daniel came and as a test of trust, was able to interpret those dreams. Next was, was Belshazzar. As he was throwing a party as Nebuchadnezzar was on the front lines of war, um, he also saw a writing on the wall. There was, he saw a physical hand writing something on the wall and had Daniel come in and interpret the dream. Yet another test and another king um, that Daniel served under. And what we learned two weeks ago in chapter 5 was that um, the Assyrians came in, and they took over Babylon. And Darius took control of the kingdom. And all that I can imagine is that this is the third king that Daniel served under. Right, what is it about Daniel that he continually gets bolstered into a position of authority? I think this really says something about who Daniel is as a person. And now, at the time of Darius' reign, one of the things that they did that they were pretty intentional with was that he had 120 um, officers, um, satraps, administrators that he put in control. And so could you imagine what Daniel did as Darius' armies came in and they literally killed off everybody who was in leadership? And then he got to Daniel. And I wonder what Daniel did as he came face-to-face with Darius, right, as he's killing everybody in charge— And Darius is probably giving him the test of loyalty. Will you be loyal to me or are you loyal to the old throne? And I think this is what makes Daniel stand out was it was his character that passed the test um, to Darius that he knew he was going to be loyal because Daniel was a man of character. So he got put into another position of leadership because of who Daniel was. And I think at this time probably in Daniel's life, um, he was in his 80s. As we learned earlier, that he was, he was not inundated with royalty anymore, right? Belshazzar was trying to lavish him with royalty as he was able to interpret his dreams. And Jesus said, you can keep your royalties. He's like, I don't need that. And I think behind the scenes, he knew that Belshazzar was probably going to get, uh, was going to be killed. So he said, whatever royalties you give me, they're going to be gone anyways. So he stopped relying on other people to um, give him his identity, but he was so rooted in God that uh, he didn't let other people's opinions sway him. He was so deeply rooted in God that that's where his character came out of. And I think Daniel was also not inundated with those royalties. So, So those little things that other people were trying to achieve, Daniel didn't worry about anymore. He was more worried about becoming a man of character and a man after God. Um, that that would he, is what he continued to pursue, and I think Daniel or Darius saw that in Daniel, and that's why he was put into a place of leadership. And now Steve last week talked a lot about uh, character. So if you want to go back and listen to what it looks like to, uh, to be trustworthy, to be a person of integrity, go back and listen to last week. Uh, Steve had a lot of really good things to say about that. So I'm not going to sit here for too long as we talked about uh, Daniel being a man of character. But what, what I did notice in this story is we see what it looks like to not be a person of character. As we see the satraps and administrators trying to conspire against Daniel, they started to spin some tales to Darius to get an edict put in place, right? So as they approached Darius, they said, everybody agrees that we need to do this. And it really wasn't everybody. It was a few people that were probably jealous and envious of Daniel continually being put in a place of authority. So as they began to spin this tale, they, they compromised their character to try to get what they wanted, and if we jump to the end of the story, we can see how that played out for them. So Daniel, right, a tale was spun against him, was put in the lion's den, and he was raised out. But the part that I didn't read is those that conspired against Daniel were thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and their children, and their bones were crushed instantly by the lions. They had a very gloom fate because they begin to spin tails. And I think here we can see the truth will always prevail. And Daniel let his character lead the way instead of, as the satraps and administrators did, they began to compromise their character. And then as they compromised, the satraps and administrators convinced Darius to write this new decree. And what I think is interesting is that Daniel's only response in this whole chapter was issued is explained right here. So as Daniel found out this new decree was issued, he went back to his house and he prayed three times a day, giving thanks to God just as he always did. Because Daniel was consistent in his faith. And this is what sets Daniel apart, was this consistency in his own walk with God. In verse 10 it says, Now we see, now we learned that Daniel, when the decree was published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he has done before. Now I think we are all creatures of habits to some point. We like routine, we like things to be consistent in our own life. And I think what happens is sometimes... In our own habits, we have the choice to either choose comfort or sometimes to choose to be courage, create, uh, create, or courageous, that's the word, to be courageous with things that are hard to do. Sometimes even in our own comfort, maybe at night before you go to bed, you scroll through your phone, you're know, reading news articles on Facebook, and you scroll what turns 10 minutes into being an hour, when it could have been just 10 minutes reading the word. Maybe our comfort looks like we're so used to the fear and the anxiety and the stress of work. We just sit in that instead of offering just a quick word of prayer. Sometimes we allow that comfort in our routine to precede our courage. To be able to take a step out and to do things that might take a little bit more effort. A little bit more intentionality in our own consistency. Because what I've learned is the habits that we instill before crisis... Are the habits that will prevail in crisis. I'll say that again: the habits that we instill before crisis will only prevail in crisis. So to be aware with the things that we are consistent with. because I think sometimes our daily routine can be some of the most formative things that we can commit to doing. Now, Pastor Ben uh, recommended this book for me to read this summer, and I've really enjoyed it. It's called Praying Like Fools, or Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And there's a really good chapter on what it looks like to labor in prayer. So I'm going to read just a small portion out of this. Tyler Statton says it this way. He says, I want to be there where the fire falls down. I want to see revival. Bring on the signs and the wonders. We want to be a part of these big mountaintop moments where we see lives changed, God's redemption revealed. We want to be a part of these big moments, but far fewer of us are ready to labor in secret prayer. It's not glamorous, but it's powerful and effective. It requires us to be persistent and single-minded and to develop an acquired taste for the unglamorous. To accept this invitation requires us to display a stubborn willingness to pray through the waiting and supernatural labor of willful agony for the promise of new life. We have to develop an acquired taste for the unglamorous. I think some of us are always waiting for these, these big moments to always be a part of, but those big moments only exist because we're, we're willfully agonizing and laboring in prayer. That, those are the key moments that our faith is concreted in developed. Now, as we look at Daniel, I think he sets up this beautiful example of what agonizing and prayer truly looks like. As we learn that Daniel prayed three times a day, facing jerusalem there's two things in here that are not common with our prayer practice the first one is simply this it wasn't normal for people to pray three times a day at this time it wasn't a common practice that wasn't a requirement some, some would say that he got that out of the psalms when david said i pray morning afternoon and evening but that wasn't a common practice of, of what people were doing as they were um, as they were praying and the other thing that I see is, as see he's, he's praying in open windows towards Jerusalem. All right, last week we learned, uh, King, or uh, Steve said that King Darius, later in his reign, rebuilt the temples in Jerusalem. So at this time, when Daniel was praying, the temple was destroyed, so he's sitting here praying 3 times a day to a temple that has been long destroyed. So he's not praying as a highlight moment. He's praying towards devastation and hope for what could be. He's giving us the true example of what it looks like to labor in prayer. He's fully committed to this He's not praying because he has to He's praying because he wants to It's a a compulsion of love Because he sees the hope and the renewal That God can offer us even in our own lives Daniel lays out that perfect example Of what it looks like to labor in prayer I think part of it Is he's trying to follow some of the commandments Where they say be holy because I am holy God is saying be committed to me Know me John Mark Comer says it really well. He says it this day. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. We have to follow the example of what Jesus has done for us. So as we look at Jesus in his early ministry, he's calling disciples, he's healing the sick. We see him walking this path of just continual ministry. Lives are being transformed around him. But he made it a consistent pattern in his life to get away and to pray. So Mark 1, 35 says it this way. He says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. This was a consistent practice. It wasn't because he had to. It's because he wanted to be in relationship and connected to the Father. So much so that even after a busy time of ministry, he went off to a solitary place and he prayed. And the disciples were so disgruntled because they could never find Jesus because he was always trying to be in communion with the Father. So when he was found, the disciples were like, where have you been? We've been looking for you. But Jesus made it a consistent practice to connect with the Father. And that was Daniel prayed in an open window we realized that it put him in a place that he'd have to give an account for his actions. It put him in a position that he'd have to give an account for his actions because there was a decree, a decree that was just issued that said any person praying to a man or a God will be thrown into the lion's den. And so he made the choice to go home and to pray. And he knew that he'd have to count the cost of what it would, what it would take. If somebody is conspiring against you, nowadays we'd probably hire like a PI, like a private investigator, to follow you around and to to watch your daily rhythms and your daily routines to know exactly what you do. If somebody were to hire a PI for me, it'd be pretty boring. But they'd probably notice every morning at six o'clock I make coffee, and maybe three or four times a night during the week I walk my dog. Like they'd find that out pretty consistently. And if somebody is to follow Daniel, they know that he's going to sit and pray three times a day to this window facing Jerusalem. So as Daniel's doing this, he he knows that he's putting himself in a place where he's going to have to give an account for his actions. So Daniel was willing to count the cost of his faith. Now as we are at this part of the story, we remember that the story accounts for more of Darius's response than it does Daniel's response. Because Daniel's response was simply that he went out, he went home, and he prayed three times a day, giving thanks to God. We see a lot about how Darius responded. Because Darius was in great distress, and he made every effort to try to rescue Daniel. And as Daniel prayed, I think Daniel was praying that God, that he, A, first of all, it says he was giving thanks, but he was also asking for help. He was praying that God would help rescue him or help him to enable and endure the suffering that was to come. So he counted the cost of the decisions that he made. And so as Daniel was, uh, as the satraps and administrators came back to Daniel and they said, your servant Daniel's not listening to you and we need to throw him into the lion's den. Darius scattered around trying to find everything to do. And then he said, he said, okay, you're right. So he had to go through with his orders. So they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said, Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Now this is where my mind goes, my imagination goes a little wild about this lion's den. Right, I'm going to have some pictures of, of, a, of a potential lion's den show up on the screen. And I'm just wondering like why, like why is there a pit with lions in it? Like, how did this happen? Right? But what we learn as we go through this story, we realize that the Persians that were a part of uh, Darius's reign were masters of torture. He had 120 leaders right, that were loyal to the throne. I think partly they used scare tactics to make sure that they remained loyal. And I think this was one scare tactic that they had. So as I was reading through, like, how did this lion's pit exist? It wasn't just like a den that they walked into. But it was probably a a latrine or a well that was dug out that they had lions in. They were probably always hungry. And what they would do is anybody who wasn't loyal to the throne, they would throw them in there for lunch. The lions were probably overjoyed every time they saw somebody gather around the front. Because they were probably hungry. And so I can only imagine what was going through Daniel's mind when they came and they took him. And they brought him to the edge of this pit. It kind of seems like those moments in your life where you face a situation that seems bigger than yourself. Sometimes I can imagine you're like climbing the mountaintop. And then you begin looking down. And your heart just begins to race. Some of you right now, your hands are sweaty. He's like, he's so tall. <laughs> What's going to happen? But it's those mountaintop experiences where if some of you thrill, thrill seekers, like you enjoy this. You're like, like climbing mountains and looking over the edge. And it's like, for me, my heart is like pounding. It's like, why would you ever want to do this? The adrenaline is rushing. It's like, have you ever been like cliff jumping before? Has anybody, anybody done that before? Is that a thing around here? That was, when we lived in Ohio, that was like a thing. we had a lot of cliffs, we would jump off into water. Now, I'm not endorsing cliff jumping. So kids that are in this room, this is a terrible idea. Uh, But if you ever are to do it, I'm going to give you two pieces of advice. Make sure you check the water depth first, super important, lots of accidents happen because people don't, and always jump feet first. So in my youth, this was something that we used to do, we'd we'd jump off of cliffs, jump off of bridges, we'd go kayaking, it was a blast, uh, but also terrifying. And I always remember those moments where you're standing at the top of this cliff, and you're like, "All right, getting the courage to just jump. And so situations in life that seem bigger than yourself, it's that same feeling that you get. In a moment where you can either choose to like trust God, or you can wellow in like worry and stress. I remember when my wife and I decided to move to South Dakota. It was this huge moment of trust. We we intentionally made this choice because we needed to choose our marriage versus everything else that was going on in our life. So we chose, uh, for some reason, to move to South Dakota. My best friend lived out here. And, we didn't, and it was just a huge moment of trust for us to come out here. Uh, on our way out, we told God four things needed to happen. Mind you, not a good idea to tell God what you need, but we did. Um, so we said, we need to sell our house. Uh, my wife needs to find a job. I need to find a job. And we need to find somewhere to live that can accommodate two dogs. Um, and what we realized is slowly and surely, these things started happening. Right, so we got an offer on our house. My wife got a job without ever being out here, which was super amazing. Um, And we had a a contract for a place that we could move into, but it wasn't going to be for a couple of weeks. So it was a moment for us to like, these mountaintop moments where it's like, all right, God, we trust you. Like we know, we we know you have our best interest at heart. But then along the journey, trust can be hard. Because even in our journey out here, uh, the the um, contract on our house fell through. I didn't have a job, which was kind of terrifying, <laughs> right? But it wasn't until the way out here, we got a call. I was in the moving truck on the way out here. And uh, the housing company we we're going with, us, they called us and said, hey, uh, your house is available. You guys can move in. It's like there's moments where your trust is continually being tested with these in- integral moments. But I think what we decided to do was say, we're all in, God, we trust you. And it's the best decision that we've ever made. And I look at Daniel's story. He has this moment of of trust God as he went to go pray. So Daniel, I think he, he counted the cost. He went up and he prayed. He sat. He was still. He was quiet and he prayed. But Darius on the other side was distressed, he was worried, he was anxious, he was scurrying around trying to come up with another game plan. What does it look like when you face situations in your life that seem bigger than you when you need to trust God? I think Daniel was fully confident when he was thrown into the lion's den. And that night, Darius went back to his palace. He couldn't eat. He didn't want any entertainment. He couldn't sleep. And at first dawn, he ran back to the lion's den. And he yelled out, he said, Daniel, has the God whom you've continually served been able to rescue you? And Daniel responded. He said, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and they shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed. Daniel had trusted God. He trusted that God would either help him through or endure the suffering. Daniel was confident when he was thrown into the pit. Can you live with that sort of confidence? Facing those situations that are bigger than you? And now prayer is tricky. This is what I've learned. Because often we pray, our will be done, not your will be done. And we see time and time again where God answers prayers in ways that we can never understand. Even as I look at the early church in Acts... Right? The church was being persecuted, so they, they spread quickly. King Herod was in control at the time, and he was trying to gather up the disciples so they couldn't continue this revolution that was happening. And each night, the early church, there were small groups. They would meet at their houses, and then they would pray. In Acts 12, we see two of the disciples get thrown into jail. Peter and James both get thrown into jail. At night, that little community, they gathered to pray. But what, what we find out... Is James was killed. And then an angel of the Lord came and got Peter out of jail. And prayer is tricky. Because I know as they were meeting, that community was praying for both James and Peter. But only Peter made it out. Because frankly, we don't get to choose the circumstances we're in, we only get to choose how we respond. Now I know a lot of you guys might be facing some of these big obstacles, these big mountaintop moments in our own lives. Some of them don't seem fair. Some of them are things you've chosen to be in. Some, you just had some hard things happen. I'm sorry for some of those hard things. So I can't say I have a great answer for it. But what I do see is I want to respond like Daniel responds, not like Darius responds. Because Daniel stopped and he prayed. He gave thanks and he also asked for help. Because he knew that God would either bring him out or give him the courage to endure the suffering that was to come. And then as I look at this, the only question that I can ask is, how? How did Daniel have the courage to do this? And I think he had the courage to do it because of everything that we've talked about. Because of his character, because of his consistency. He counted the cost. But I think most of all, Daniel was in communion with God. Daniel was in constant communion with God. Through this entire book, it's been, in an, it's been a book of, God, of, of of Daniel facing tests of trust. The entire book is full of Daniel being tested to trust God. Through Nebuchadnezzar, interpreting dreams, Nebuchadnezzar was killing off anybody who couldn't interpret his dreams. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, another test of trust. Daniel was thrown into the lions' den, another test of trust. It's because Daniel was in constant communion with the Father that it enabled him to endure these consistent tests. And then what you can see through this is his life became a testimony to others. So even as Darius, you can see his wrestling with this. That's why Darius was in such distress. I think it brought Darius to a place that he can only testify to what God has done because i think your life will be a testimony to others because of the trials that you've gone through you don't get to pick the highlight moments it's not like your reels you don't get to see all the good things that are just happening in people's lives but it's those mundane boring moments of prayer that we get to labor in prayer those are the those are the moments that become the testimony to others those become our highlight reels And you see King, you see King Darius's responses to Daniel's life at the end of chapter six. He says this, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. This is the God that we serve. A God who rescues and a God who saves, who performs signs and wonders in heavens and earth. He is a God that rescues. This is the God that we serve. And Darius can see it because of Daniel's life. So we saw it fitting today to finish with a time of communion together. Because Daniel's relationship was not a checklist. It wasn't something that he had to do. It wasn't to be popular. But it was a reflection of his relationship with the Father because he was in constant communion with the Father. Daniel went through lament and grief with the Father as he was praying to the destroyed temple. But he also prayed with hope and joy because he knew that of what God could do, that God could rescue him. So today, as we take communion together, as we come and we grab the elements, I want you to think of those, those mountaintop moments where God is giving us opportunities to trust him. Reflect on your relationship and your communion with the Father and remember what Christ has done for us.